Hannah. Good morning. Um, it was, um, I thought, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a thing when Chris asked me to share with you back in February, and then he asked me to do it again. Um, so it's, um, it's a new privilege um, for me to experience getting to open God's Word um, with a group in this setting. I grew up as a church kid, and so um, definitely colored on all of the um, envelopes and played um, hangman and did all the things from little bitty in a pew. Um, and so it's um, it's not lost on me the privilege that it is to get to be with you on a Sunday morning in this capacity. Um, so I'm thankful that Chris asked me to come back and open God's Word with you again. As Hannah mentioned, Chris has been speaking um, and teaching for us on a series called Creed, based loosely on what's called the Apostles' Creed, which is a good summary, like the song that we sang of um, all of the things that we believe as those who belong to Jesus. Um, He asked me to end the series this morning. He gave me the sermon title, um, Living in Light of Eternity. I changed it. Um, We're going to get to Living in Light of Eternity But I felt like that concept um, builds over the course of the narrative of Scripture in such a beautiful way that I wanted to go back and cover it um, all the way through. So we're going to talk about all the things that God makes new, um, which will eventually be everything uh, when we get to eternity. But the point being that Jesus changes everything. Jesus has changed everything. Jesus is in the process of changing everything. Jesus will ultimately change everything. We're going to talk about a a theological concept this morning that's called the already and not yet of Scripture. God is not bound by time in the same way that we are, right? He created that for us. If you ever question that, spend some time thinking about what it would be like to live life without the confines and the construct of time, Um, it might make your head explode, right? Our finite minds need time. God, however, operates outside of time. So when he says that all things are new, all things are already new, all things are becoming new, and he will make all things new, that's not actually hard for him, right? The, The reason that it's hard for us is because all of those verbs are in different tenses, because we have to operate inside of time. So we're going to talk today about three results of the gospel within that theological construct of the already and the not yet, because they're both true. Before we get started, just to make sure we're all on the same page, this gospel that we talk about is a simple story, but it has a whole lot of ramifications. God came to this planet, right? Took on human form, was born from a virgin, did in his adulthood about three years of ministry, died a really horrific death, was buried. On the third day, rose again 
As Miss Mary talked about this morning, about 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where today he sits at the right hand of God. One day God is going to look at him and say, go back. Right? He's coming again to get us. That encapsulates what we mean when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a few points in there that are super important and the hills that we would die on. Right? Like some of that non-negotiable. You get outside of that, and that's what determines maybe whether or not you end up at the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church. But that, the, the gospel is what we're talking about. That, that simple story, God came, God died, God rose again, he's coming back. And the fact that that painful death was sufficient to bring us back into right relationship with God, that is what we're talking about. There are three primary results of that gospel that we're going to talk about today. We're going to use some multisyllabic words. It's going to make you feel smart, I hope. But they're going to help us to understand this already and not yet. The first one is justification. Because Jesus came and Jesus changes everything, we have been made new if we are in Christ. It's not the way that Merriam-Webster would say it, But a wonderful definition, and one that simplifies it enough for people like me, is that justification makes it just as if I had never sinned. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. The primary verse we're going to look at is 17, but I'm going to back up all the way to verse 14 to start reading. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Some versions say compels us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, you are already a new creation. You have been justified. Jesus has already changed your spiritual DNA. Completely different. One of the ways that it might be helpful to think about this is if we talk about financial debt. Let's say that you find yourself under a pretty significant financial debt. In the course of living daily life, you find that not only is the interest accruing, but in order for you to have a place to live and buy food, you actually keep adding to the principal. It doesn't take a financial genius to realize that if you live that way for very long, you can never dig yourself out of it. You can only service your debt to a certain extent. It doesn't matter how many over, overtime hours you work, how great an investment you make. You're, you're never going to be able to dig yourself out if every single day you're incurring more debt. Now let's assume that a benefactor shows up, right? And through only a deep love for you and at personal, a great personal cost to himself, He pays off what you already owe. 
he not only pays off everything you already owe, but makes a commitment to pay on any future debt that you incur. He brings you back flush, right? Zeroes all the accounts out. I don't think that it's a coincidence that we use the term debt forgiveness to mean real similar things to what we mean when we say sin forgiveness. There's a, there's a few approaches to life then as people who have been forgiven of a great debt. Right? If we go back to the financial example, one approach to life could be that, well, if every future debt that I incur is, is covered, then I'm going to get that bigger house. We can go down to the dealership and get the next best car. I can pick up the tab of every person in every restaurant I ever walk into, right? All of my future debt is also forgiven. I would argue that someone who had been forgiven an insurmountable amount of debt who then lives that way probably doesn't adequately appreciate what they had been forgiven. Paul mentions a couple of different times in the New Testament, should we go on sinning so that grace can increase? Do we go on spending because we have somebody who's covering the bill for us? His response every time is, may it never be. Right? Those of us who understand and appreciate our justification lean in to what it means to have been forgiven much. The term, the result of the gospel for leaning into what that means and living accordingly is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made new. We were justified by our faith because Jesus changed everything for us. His sacrifice at Calvary was sufficient. He got close to the end of his life, nearing death, and said, it is finished. And that's true. It's a done deal. It's in the past. We don't have to add anything to it. We are justified. But we are being sanctified. We are in the process of being made new as well. The Greek word in Scripture... Um, for sanctification means properly or purification or holiness. We live as those who have been justified as we are being sanctified by being holy, right? We don't overspend the benefactor that came and brought us back to zero. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6 talks about this in a really beautiful way that I appreciate. Um, We're going to start reading in verse 19, Romans chapter 6, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You once 
before you were justified, made yourself a slave to lawlessness, a slave to sin. Now, on this side of our justification, as we are being sanctified, we make ourselves slaves to righteousness. And the fruit of that, according to this passage in Romans, is eternal life. Jesus changed everything. We were justified. Jesus is changing everything as we are sanctified and lean into what it means to be holy. And the end of sanctification is eternal life. It's our third result of the gospel as we are glorified. Glorification means finally new. The textbook definition of glorification is to exalt or to dignify. Jesus changed everything. Jesus is changing everything. He will ultimately change everything. Look just a page or two later in Romans chapter 8. We were in 6. Now go to 8. I'm going to back all the way up a little bit more, I think, than what is going to appear on the screen uh, to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. At our justification, we were adopted. I've had the privilege of having a front row seat for uh, a few adoptions. I've stood in courtrooms um, on um, actually a couple of different continents and heard parents stand before a judge and commit to raising children that are not theirs biologically. It's really a beautiful process to watch and I think maybe some biological parents would benefit from working through at least the thought process. But the judge usually says something like, will you commit to give this child all of the same rights and privileges that your biological children would have? All the same rights and privileges. When God says that at our justification he adopted us into his family, it's not in the, well, sure, you can live in my house and I'll provide for you until you're 18 kind of way. It's with all the same legal rights and privileges that any child of his has. This passage in Romans says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus. We get eventually everything that he has. Right? That's what heir means. One day, everything that God has comes to us. Ultimately, when we are glorified, we will inherit all of it. Right now, as we are being sanctified, there are family traits. He's passed on some things to us already. Jesus changed everything when we were justified and brought right 
with, brought, brought right into our relationship with God. Jesus is changing everything as we are sanctified in this process while we are still here. And as we are glorified in the future, he will change everything. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> the biblical narrative is just that. It's one story. It starts in Genesis. It ends in Revelation it might seem like a little bit of a nerdy thing to do in your free time, but sometime compare the first couple of chapters of Genesis with the last couple of chapters of Revelation. They're really kind of parallel stories. The descriptors are amazingly similar. The important thing to note, though, is that where we are headed in our glorification, much better than Eden. We, we talk about returning to the garden, but Eden, as good as it sounds, doesn't hold a candle to what is to come. In Eden, that serpent was allowed to be slithering around. He's not going to make an appearance in new creation. The city is described a little bit later. We're not going to read it today, but as having gates, but the gates never close because there's no threat to come in from the outside. Remember in Eden, there were two trees in the center of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The knowledge of good and evil, that tree, doesn't make an appearance in new creation. Only the tree of life is there, and it bears fruit every single month, and it's on both sides of the river. John, who got to, to catch a glimpse of these things before he wrote them down, Language really failed him in a lot of ways. There's a, there's a lot of odd descriptions in there. Some, some of it is described, the, the streets are described as being like gold and clear as crystal. I don't really know what that means. But clearly John saw something that was beautiful. Listen to this early description, though. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We know from the Genesis account that God has the power to speak things into existence, right? He said, let there be light. There was light. He's powerful enough once we get to new creation to say something like, no more tears. There will be no more crying. And it would turn off. He, he holds that kind of power. He also has a whole crew of people and, and beings working for him, right? He could send angels to each one of us to dry our tears if that's how he wanted for life to be there. But instead, what we have is a description of a deeply intimate, deeply personal relationship. In our glorification... Scripture says that we are going to know as we have been fully known. We're going to get to be face to face. He himself, he's not going to farm it out. He's not just going to speak it into existence. He is going to wipe the tears from our eyes. 
Because we're going to be in a place, if you keep reading verse 4, he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That language should sound really familiar from the verse in 2 Corinthians 5 that we read about our justification. If we are in new If we are in Christ, we are new creations, right? The old has passed away. The new has come. When we ultimately get to new creation, all the old things will have passed away. This time, including death and pain and tears. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This fallen creation that we live in right now, things die, things decay, not just humans, but all of it. He's going to redeem all of it. He's going to make all of it new. Jesus changes everything. We are justified by our faith. We already are new creations because Jesus changed everything. We are being sanctified. And made holy as Jesus changes everything. And ultimately, we will be made new along with all the rest of creation as we are glorified as Jesus makes all things new. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we think. Second Corinthians in chapter 4 talks about our light and momentary troubles attaining for us a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Our, our troubles right now aren't actually light and momentary, are they? Not from our current perspective. They're, it's pretty heavy and dark. You don't have to go all the way to Syria or all the way to South Sudan to find the dark and the heavy. There's suffering in LaGrange, right? Romans chapter 8 talks about if we suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. That's a whole other sermon series on suffering, but we don't have to look far to find it. But what the suffering that we endure during our sanctification achieves for us in our glorification makes the things that we suffer now seem light and momentary in comparison. It's worth it to follow him. It's worth it to lean into sanctification and the holiness process. Because we've been forgiven much. And ultimately, he's going to dignify us. Right? That's what one of the definitions of glorification. There's going to be a dignity in standing face to face with him and him personally wiping the tears. If you are not sure of your relationship with the Lord this morning, if you don't know that you've been justified and are being sanctified and will be glorified... Don't leave the building without asking somebody about it. There are a lot of people here who can help walk you through that. And God can stand up to every single question you have. Don't be afraid to ask them. Y'all pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is one story that fits together from beginning to end. Thank you that we are still in the middle of it and you are still working. Lord, would you take your word um, as scripture uh, describes it as a seed implanted in us? Would you allow it to bear much 
fruit. Jesus, thank you that you change everything. You have already changed everything. You are changing everything. And you're coming back to change it completely. We thank you that we get to be people of that promise who can walk in that truth. Jesus, you are worthy um, of your name. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Um, But today, collectively, we bow voluntarily and tell you that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.